Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Nixon Now podcast, presented to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. I'm your host, Jonathan Mavroidis. Today's subject is, is 2016 anything like 1968? That is, is the political landscape in the current race for the White House, the characters, issues, debate, and conflict, anything like the historic election that saw Richard Nixon's rise to the presidency? Here with us to talk about the subject is speechwriter and senior advisor to President Nixon, Pat Buchanan. Buchanan is author of several books, including his latest, The Greatest Comeback, about Richard Nixon's comeback after the 1960 defeat in the presidential race against John F. Kennedy. He's also writing a forthcoming memoir about his years in the Nixon White House. This interview lasts nearly 30 minutes. Thank you very much, Pat, for joining us. So can you take us through 1968? Uh, What was the nation experiencing at this time in American history? Well, 1968 was probably the most divisive year in American history. Uh, since the Civil War. Uh, It began in uh, January 30th or 31st as we were headed into Boston to file on the last day for the New Hampshire primary with President Nixon, or then former Vice President Nixon. And that day the Tet Offensive broke in South Vietnam. And let me list a couple of the items that occurred there before February was over Governor Romney, who had been the only rival to Mr. Nixon in New Hampshire primary, dropped out of the race because he had the same private polls as we did, showing him down four or five to one in New Hampshire, and Nixon was going to win a tremendous victory. And Governor Romney basically took the victory away from us by just quitting the race and not going to the conclusion on primary day. And what happened primary day, of course, then, was that Nixon amassed a huge amount of votes, more than all the other candidates on both sides put together. But the real news came out of it was that Gene McCarthy had gotten 42% against Lyndon Johnson, 49%. President Johnson, however, wasn't even on the ballot. He was a write-in. Nevertheless, it was an enormous story because Gene McCarthy uh, had really opened up the Democratic Party to a real challenge to the President of the United States, and four days later, Senator Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy of New York, jumped into the race and challenged uh, Johnson for the nomination and challenged Gene McCarthy for the nomination. And so the Democrats suddenly had the most exciting race in the country, and we moved on toward the Wisconsin primary, and uh, two, two days before the Wisconsin primary, Lyndon Johnson gave a speech on Vietnam, uh, at the end of which he declared he would not be running again for the nomination or for another term in the presidency of the United States. So he dropped out there. And uh, Nixon had asked me to be at the airport. He was coming back from a visit to Wisconsin uh, that Sunday. He asked me to monitor Johnson's speech and brief him on it in his private plane when he got landed and then he would be able to talk to the press about what the president had said and comment on it. And I jumped aboard that Learjet and, uh, and told him, uh, Lyndon Johnson's not running. And Nixon came off to the uh, Learjet and said to the press, I guess it's the year of the dropout, because Romney had dropped out and now Lyndon Johnson had dropped out. And also, incidentally, 
in that February, Nelson Rockefeller had uh, declared that he would announce right after Bobby Kennedy. But when he did, he announced he wasn't running either. So that's why Nixon used the phrase, the year of the dropout. But about four days after Lyndon Johnson declined to run again and announced that to the nation in his Vietnam speech, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. And the racial riots broke out in 100 American cities, including my hometown, Washington, D.C., uh, which was in flames and burning for days on end, as were, as I said, something like 100 other American cities. It was an enormously destructive event, a ruinous event. Uh, and Vice President, former Vice President Nixon went down to the funeral and marched in the funeral for Dr. King, as did Bobby Kennedy and Gene McCarthy and uh, Hubert Humphrey also, I believe. And, uh, and then we, we proceeded, and Nixon did extremely well in Wisconsin. Of course, we weren't running against any opposition. However, what was really telling was that Nixon was far ahead of the figures he, he mounted up in 1960. Not only that, he was getting more votes than all the other candidates in both parties put together, indicating real strength in 1968. And so after the uh, after the uh, the uh, Wisconsin primary and, and the death of uh, Dr. King and the riots, then we proceeded to uh, to uh, May and June. And in May, uh, the riots broke out at Columbia University, one of the worst campus riots of the 1960s. And then in early June, uh, right after the Oregon primary, one week after the Oregon primary, which Nixon had won defeating Reagan and Rockefeller, and Reagan showing greater strength by then than Rockefeller, Bobby Kennedy had been beaten in Oregon, the first time a Kennedy lost an election uh, since World War II, any Kennedy, Jack or Bobby. And he'd been beaten by Eugene McCarthy because uh, Oregon was not Kennedy country. But then that next week in California, Bobby Kennedy won that primary. Uh, and uh, as he went through the kitchen after his victory, he was assassinated. Uh, and they had the funeral, and, uh, and they took his body all the way from New York down to Arlington to bury him on that train. And campaigning was suspended then. And what happened was that, uh, that we took time off, and all of a sudden everyone had Secret Service protection. We were in a brand-new era then. And then we proceeded to the Republican Convention, which was the coronation of Richard Nixon and the astonishing selection of Spiro II Agnew, the uh, Spiro Agnew, the governor of Maryland, as his running mate. Agnew had been an early Rockefeller supporter who had been disillusioned because Rockefeller never gave him word he wasn't going to run. And when he held that press conference and announced he wasn't going to run in March, Agnew had invited in all the press <laughs> and sat there while... Governor Rockefeller delivered all that egg all over his face. And so we had recruited Vice President Agnew, or future Vice President Agnew by then. And so after that Republican coronation in uh, Miami Beach, I asked President Nixon uh, uh, to send me out to Chicago for the Democratic Convention, and I could be his eyes and ears out there. I knew it was going to be historic, and uh, I didn't know quite how historic, so... He sent me out there, and I was up on the 19th floor there with, it so happened with Norman Mailer and Jose Torres, the boxer, uh, in our suite on that 19th floor when the cops took off into Grant Park 
and really thrashed and beat the demonstrators and basically put out a picture to the nation of a democratic party really physically at war with itself outside the hall and shouting and screaming at itself inside the hall. And this, of course, set the table for the campaign Nixon began in the fall of 1968, where our, our, our point basically was this. If they cannot unite themselves, how can the Democratic Party unite the country? And it was a very compelling argument because the Democratic Party had split three ways. There was the Wallace vote, uh, which, uh, uh, which had left the Democratic Party and was going third party. There was the Bobby Kennedy, Gene McCarthy wing of the party. And there was the center of the party with Humphrey, Vice President and President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson. And that party was shattered. And that presented the opportunity for the Republicans, who were still very much a minority party, to put together a coalition to win that race. What um, Nixon, what were the major what were the major shifts uh, socially and politically that that caused that fracture in the Democratic Party to to occur? Well, in Wallace initially ran in 1962, 1962, 1963, especially when he was so he ran in 1964, Wallace had run, in the Democratic primaries. And while he raised the issue of against compulsory integration, and busing wasn't a big issue then in the South, it was simply integrating the schools, and there was tremendous resistance. But Wallace had run extremely well in the Wisconsin primary and in the Indiana primary, and in the Maryland primary in 1964, Wallace had gotten a majority of the white vote, carried a majority of the counties in, uh, in Maryland, and had almost won the primary there. And he had run a tremendously a populist anti-integration race in 1964. But by the time he got to 68, Wallace was running, in effect, to win enough electoral votes to put the election into the Electoral College and into the House of Representatives. So in 68, he had a much broader, or a broader, if you will, revolution on, on his hands. And he was arguing against the great society and against federal judges and against bureaucrats. And he had populist rhetoric. And at one point in 68, he was winning seven states, the five states of the Deep South and the two Carolinas. And, uh, and he was a real problem in the 68 race for us because we felt that if Wallace was out of the race, these southern states were so hostile to the great society and so alienated from the National Democratic Party that they would be natural allies of a center conservative Republican Party led by Nixon and Agnew, a party of Nixon and Reagan, uh, and nationally. And so Wallace was a real threat to us. And so... Uh, this is what, uh, and, and all during the campaign, we would send Sparrow Vice President Agnew down to the border states, which we thought we might win, to, you know, give tough rhetoric and to compete with basically drive George Wallace back to the lower south. And uh, at the same time, Nixon would compete with Humphrey up in the northern and the mo more moderate northern states. So we were caught between uh, the two of them with the Democratic Party larger than ours. And it was, a, as, as Wellington said of Waterloo, it was a damn near run thing. 
who was in, in the Republican Party? Um, where did the how was the how were the candidates stratified? Was there an establishment candidate? Uh, was there an anti-establishment candidate? How did how did the Republican uh, race evolve in 1968? Well, uh, issue-wise, well, you had the the Republican. Here's what to understand 68. You got to go back to 64, where Barry Goldwater uh, and his insurgency had managed to capture the Republican nomination uh, and seal the victory with a narrow victory over Governor Nelson Rockefeller in the California primary. And Goldwater went to the convention. And at that convention, uh, Rockefeller and Governor Romney of Michigan and Governor Scranton and others just denounced Goldwaterism, you know, as anti-civil rights, as extreme. They demanded a platform plank that said that uh, compared the John Burt Society to the Communist Party and the Ku Klux Klan. And all these things were rejected, and the, and the convention was bitter and divided out at the Cal Palace. But the Goldwater people triumphed handily. And the great mistake made by the Republican establishment, and I think a fatal mistake uh, for the establishment, its, its time was coming anyhow, but it was clearly advanced when Rockefeller and Romney and Scranton and the rest declined to endorse Goldwater and walked away from the nominee who was going to go down to certain defeat. And here is where I think the, the instincts and the natural inclination of Nixon, Richard Nixon, in 1964 are the reason he eventually became president. After having gone to the Cleveland Governor's Conference and been party, a fellow traveler in the so-called coup to prevent a Goldwater nomination, Nixon realized Goldwater was going to be nominated so he volunteered to give the introduce Goldwater to the convention and give the speech, bringing him to the podium. Then he went out and campaigned all over the country for Barry Goldwater. Some say harder than Goldwater even campaigned for himself. At the same time that Rockefeller and Romney and Scranton and the establishment basically cut Goldwater dead and walked away from him, believing they would inherit the estate after the disaster. But what happened was that uh, they embittered and alienated the conservatives who were now dominant at the grassroots of the party. Uh, and those conservatives would never support them again. At the same time, those conservatives felt as they owed a debt to Richard Nixon, who had gone all over the country for their man in a certain defeat. And they appreciated that. And, and when I came with Richard Nixon in 65, 66, I mean, conservatives would say, you know, uh, I'm not that much for Nixon. But he stood by us when no one else did, so we're for him. And Goldwater endorsed Nixon at the beginning of 1965. So this, it seemed to me, that decision by Richard Nixon to endorse Goldwater, to introduce Goldwater, to go out there and work for Goldwater and every other Republican in what he knew was going to be a Republican defeat and disaster, I think was the really the, just about the smartest single political decision Richard Nixon made, and it's contrasted with the selfish, stupid decision of the Republican establishment to walk away from Barry Goldwater, because after they did, they never got back the Republican Party for a generation. So fast forward to 2016. Is the 2016 landscape, the candidates, the issues, anything like 1968? No, the big issue in 68 was the war in Vietnam. 
And the Demo- that's what split the Democratic Party, the McCarthy, Gene McCarthy, uh, Bobby Kennedy wing off uh, from the Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey wing. That's what split them off. And it also, of course, divided the country. And Nixon ran on a peace with honor platform. Uh, secondly, law and order was a tremendous issue. Now, law and order had been used against Goldwater. They said, you know, law and order is a code word for racism in 64. But by 1968, with the campuses exploding and the riots in the cities and the crime rate doubling, uh, it was a genuinely serious issue. And if you were not hard line on law and order and restoring, you know, security to the streets of America and the schools of America, and the cities of America, uh, then you were a loser. And Wallace ran on this. Uh, this theme was really propelled again, the, the uh, Wallace campaign, which had moved beyond, I mean, desegregation had largely taken place in the South, or at least it had, had been imposed in the South, and everybody knew it was coming to an end, segregation. So that's why Wallace broadened his base to law and order and, and this was a tremendously compelling issue. The pollster uh, Douglas Schoen, uh, you know, from Fox News, has a new book coming out later this month. It's called The Nixon Effect. I got my hands on an advanced copy um, about how... An advanced copy? I heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> about how Nixon's uh, presidency fundamentally changed American politics. Uh, Schoen says that while Nixon's politics were confrontational, his policies were very sober. Uh, Donald Trump, many are saying that his politics are populist and slash and burn. Um, is he using these tactics, or does he have any of these characteristics that he'll maybe maybe he's talking a populist game, but he might possibly govern from the center? Maybe there's a, a, a subtlety there. Well, let me let me talk about Nixon first. I think that's a good observation. Uh, any campaign has got a harder edge. Uh, than the uh, just about than the presidency that's conducted as a consequence of it, and and we ran a sharp-edged campaign in 1968 uh, on the issues, and uh, but when Nixon took office, and I argue this in a new book myself, is it was much more moderate. Even some have called him the last liberal, and Tom Wicker. Uh, who was a liberal columnist at the time and very critical of Nixon when he was in office after it was over, he titled his memoir or his book about Nixon, One of Us, and said, in effect, Nixon was the last liberal president. Uh, And that case can be made that Nixon was not hostile to the idea of using government uh, to achieve national goals, and Nixon did not dismantle the great society at all. He did not eliminate Medicare or or the other pro Johnson programs, except for a few small agencies. And I think that that's a, that's a fair uh, depiction by Doug Shane. And however, today, I think what you see in what Trump has done is Trump has seized upon an issue that already exists, or a couple of issues that exist in the country. And frankly, some of which we, I made myself in the 1990s in campaigns. And one is the insecure border, the masses of illegal immigrants coming into the country unimpeded, the changes they're making in, in America's cities now, and also the trade deals that have produced the massive trade deficits 
that translate into lost jobs and lost manufacturing in America. American manufacturing has been gutted in the last 20 years as a consequence of NAFTA and GATT and MFN for China and the trade deals we've negotiated with the Koreans and the others. And all of them have produced massive trade deficits. And Trump has recognized this and seized upon it and blamed the government for basically for the inequality in pay, for the lost job, for the lost manufacturing, for the last lost vitality, and promised to bring an end to this. And this issue has tremendous appeal, uh, not only in, 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 in middle America, but across the line in the Democratic Party among working class Democrats. And so that's what Trump is, is running on, those two issues, and also the idea that we're not going to get involved in any more of these crusades for democracy abroad. And all of these things, I think, are powerful issues. Now, the question is, what will he do when he gets in? I think if Trump gets in, the expectation is going to be that he's going to secure the border, and I think he has to do it, that he's going to renegotiate these trade deals and, frankly, put tariffs on, on imports of countries that don't allow us equal access to their markets. I think he's going to do a tough – if he wins, obviously, he would do a very tough job on trade and foreign policy – uh, he is he's something, I mean, when he says he's going to bomb, bomb the bleep out of, the, uh, out of ISIS, you know, I believe him, but at the same time he says he's going to stay out of the Syrian civil war, and then he welcomes the Russians coming in and bombing ISIS. So I think he's laid down some markers, and my guess is he will follow them. But will he be, if you will, a small government conservative? No, in the last analysis, even Ronald Reagan wasn't. <laughs> Ronald Reagan stopped the growth of government very well, but there was no rollback. Now, you wrote in the Washington, or you were interviewed in the Washington Post uh, this morning, um, and you write that the Democrats, especially Hillary Clinton, holds better cards in terms of demographics. Is there a pathway to the to the presidency for Donald Trump where he where he can appeal to? a broad coalition of voters and unify the Republican uh, Party, both the establishment and the anti-establishment wings? Well, I think um, now here, uh, uh, here there is a similarity uh, to what Richard Nixon accomplished in, uh, from 1969 to 1973. Uh, Nixon basically reached out, built, put together the center the center of the Republican Party, which he represented, with the Goldwater wing of the Republican Party, and united and held them basically together. Uh, some folks, like John Lindsay, who was a liberal New York mayor, Republican mayor of New York, they were alienated and they would eventually depart. And the Republican establishment basically was eclipsed in the Nixon-Agnew years. Now, I think that, uh, that what we were, let's see, we were talking about what Trump would do if he got in. I think he would certainly maintain the, 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 the center of the Republican Party if he wins, and the conservatives would stay with him. But there, the Republican establishment, I think, hasn't made up its mind what it would do if, uh, if Trump is nominated. Now, I was asked by the Washington Post what Kelly Ayotte, who's the... Uh, conservative uh, senator from New Hampshire should do if Trump wins the nomination, and she's not obviously for Trump. And my recommendation was that she congratulate him if he wins New Hampshire and endorse him in November 
even if she's not going to actively campaign or be associated with him, otherwise she could suffer the fate of uh, the Rockefeller wing of the Republicans in, after 64. You've got to support the nominee. I mean, you don't have, that doesn't mean you have to go out and say, I'm wildly enthusiastic about the nominee who is on the other side of the party. But you have to endorse them if you want to survive. And so I think that's what Trump would try to do. And I do think in a general election, Trump has a cross-party appeal that, for example, I'm not sure Ted Cruz does, who's much more conventional conservative Republican. And the cross-party appeal would be Trump is a strong man. I mean, he, and, and Hispanic voters respond to political strength and leadership and strong leaders. And I think, uh, and the fact that Trump is a, a, a job creator, the same with African Americans, with, with Barack Obama off the ballot, uh, and Trump saying, look, and there's no evidence Trump has any hostility, what, has any hostility to African Americans. I'm going to bring jobs here, and you're going to get some of them. And we're going to bring the jobs back to the United States. I think that could raise the Republican vote somewhat among in the African-American community and somewhat even maybe in the Hispanic community, where I don't think all the Hispanics are welcoming everybody coming across the border and taking their jobs. So I think he has a potential cross-party appeal that I'm not sure other Republicans have right now. Uh, when I say demographically, uh, uh, that the Democrats are, are are favored. It's uh, it's for the simple reason that when uh, you know when uh, Richard Nixon uh, won the presidency in uh, let's say in 1972, we won 49 states. About 80 87 percent of the of the country and maybe over 90 percent of the electorate uh, were European Americans, white Americans, and Nixon won two thirds of them. You don't need anybody else. But nowadays the uh, the minorities are now close to 40% of our population and close to 30% of the electorate. And Republicans are losing that vote four to one. And as that vote gets larger and larger, and the Republican base smaller and smaller, it becomes a higher and higher uh, hill to climb until it becomes a cliff. So we're in 2017 now, January 2017. We have a new president, Republican or Democrat. Are there any Nixonian solutions to the problem he or she inherits? I think uh, Nixon, there is a parallel with Nixon in this sense. Nixon had to come in, came in at a time when Americans were, were weary of the war in Vietnam that was bleeding us badly in every way, and it was dividing us. And Nixon had to end that war. He believed he did. And he set about ending the war in a way that would not pour down a sewer everything for which these Americans had fought and died. So there was an era of retrenchment, I think, politically. And Nixon would draw back, as he indicated with the Guam Doctrine, would draw back from any more wars in Asia and keep the United States out of these wars, and that any future wars the, our allies would be providing the soldiers, and we would provide some of this backup support, but we're not going to fight other countries' wars for them. I think we are in a similar situation now where the American people are very leery of any more interventions, any more wars, any more democracy crusades, any more of this 
plunging into a country, seizing the capital and rebuilding it and, and, and making it a model of democracy in the Arab or Islamic world. They've had it with that. Goodbye to all that. And I think that to do that, it's very difficult. You know, it's been said in the military that, that the most difficult exercise is the strategic retreat. And I think, in a sense, the United States, because its relative power, not its real power, but its relative power is diminishing, I think we're going to have to exercise something of a strategic retreat. We are being challenged by the Russians. Actually, it's in their own backyard in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Uh, the Chinese are saying that uh, the South China Sea, basically, and all the islands therein belong to them, and everyone else should recognize that reality and deal with it. And so I think that what you've got in the United States is challenged by a rising Iran and the Persian Gulf, and of course ISIS, all over the world. And I think you've got to, you know, basically take a look at, at whether or not you are overextended in terms of your commitment and power. And it, have we reached a point, and as Walter Milipman once described it, where a country's uh, commitments exceed its power, its foreign policy is bankrupt. And so we have to take a good hard look at that. And it, I think the next presidents, despite all the talk during campaigns of how we're going to stand up to everyone, I think you've got to take a hard look at what we can and cannot do. Thank you so much, Pat, for taking the time to do this. Delighted. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Please join us next week when we talk with presidential historian Irv Gelman on the 1946 election and President Nixon's introduction to politics as a freshman congressman from California. For the Nixon Now podcast, I'm Jonathan Mavroida signing off. Nixon Now, Nixon Now, he's made the day.